0: Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 214, for August 14th, 2008. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and uh, it's always nice. We may not have a star, a real big star, in this episode, but we've really got a fantastic episode this week. We've got both the girls from Title of Show, Heidi Blickenstaff and Susan Blackwell, as we get up close to them and talk to them about the show and their careers, and we hear some songs from of Show as well. We've also got the new gay, Rob and the gay hip hop uh, show, Bashed, and uh, they're a lot of fun, and they do a number from the show as well here in the studios. Then we got some fringe shows and some real interesting subject matter with the fringe shows. We've got uh, Paper Dolls, which is a comedy that deals uh, with the behind the scenes world of celebrity gossip. We've got the musical playing in the fringe, China, the whole enchilada. And uh, we got The Grecian Formula, which is a comedy that also investigates all the various uh, theatrical workings in the Greek. Theater scene back then, so a uh, lot of fun, a lot of stuff to hear. So let's get kicked off right now. On the boards, they've just been discussing whether or not to call it Grapper. <laughs> the hip hop musical Bashed is a gay rap opera slash musical that is written and starring Chris Craddock and Nathan Cookow. And they are both here in the studio to uh, both perform and chat with us about their show that has been now running for about a month off Broadway, a little bit longer by the time this airs. So, how you guys doing? Doing great, really man. good,
5: man. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Want to introduce yourselves so people can connect the name to? Uh... Hey, what's yeah. up? Uh, this is Nathan Cookow. This is my voice.
3: <laughs> hey, how you doing? I'd like to introduce you to my voice. I call it Chris Craddock. <laughs>
0: All right, so easy stuff out of the way first. Bashed, what is it? What's it about?
5: Uh, well, it's a it's a gay rap uh, musical. Yeah. yeah, it's the well, story. Like all gay rap. That's music. right. That's right. Like all of the, <laughs> the, many, the many gay rap musicals that are out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it's it's a, all told in rap. Um, yeah, mostly uh, in rap and spoken mm-hmm. word. It's like Les Mis, but less French and more gay. That's right. That's uh, that's what we like to think. Yeah. More uh, gay than Les Mis? <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, yeah. More <laughs> modern gay. Uh, it's the story of Jack and Dylan, uh, two guys who meet and fall in love. Um, Dylan's from the country, uh, from a very uh, conservative small town, and he, he comes out of the closet, and uh, his parents freak out, and so he moves to the big city. Uh, there he meets Jack, who's... Uh, Who's from the city, and he's, got a,
3: he's the adopted son of two gay dads, and uh, his sexuality is never an issue, and he feels very safe and comfortable in the city. And the two of them meet and fall in love.
5: Yeah, they, they meet at a gay bar in mm-hmm. town and uh, instantly sort of connect and fall in love. and yeah.
3: uh, Our story's set in Canada, so they decide to get married, and uh, we go through all of that.
5: Yeah, and yeah. Uh, one night, uh, in sort of protest to the gay marriage uh, law that passes in the, in, in the country, uh, some you know, rednecks go out and, um, and target Jack. And, uh, yeah, I'm from uh, Montana. I resent being called rednecks. Hey, man, we're from Alberta. <laughs> Look, we're from yeah. Alberta. If yeah. anybody owns redneck, it's us. Yeah, okay? Alberta's
3: the Texas of Canada, you have to understand. <laughs> hey, yeah, I'm uh, from
0: Montana. You're, so you're right below. That's right. Yeah, we're right know, above you. you. know what we, we're talking yeah. about. We went up to your place to get beer. That's
5: right. <laughs> yeah, so- <laughs> much lower drinking age. A much yeah, lower true. drinking age. That's true. So anyways, uh, Jack gets gay bashed and uh, prompts uh, Dylan to uh, go out and uh, take revenge.
3: Yeah, it's a sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, an examination of the, uh, the special kind of rage that occurs when people are victims of violence that uh, stems from discrimination.
5: Yeah, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a Romeo and Juliet but uh, with a you know sort of gay twist, yeah, and a political twist as well. I suppose in the end, we're um, you know
3: we're uh, we're for the legalization of marriage and for uh, equal rights for um, gay people uh, everywhere. But uh, you know the law is uh, is only uh, is only the first step of it. As we're seeing in Canada, just passing a law that says gays can get married um, is of great benefit, of course, to the to the gay men and women who live there. But um, it uh, is only one step in terms of like um, winning hearts and minds and uh, actually ending. The uh, the culture of discrimination
0: which uh, persists. Well, you know, I, I think personally, gays are going to be allowed to rap before they're allowed to get married. We're living proof. we're living proof.
5: That's right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, um, well, before we continue on with this, maybe we should uh, start so people can really get the flavor of what's going on with uh, a performance you're going to do. You brought in the track because it's like hip-hop, so you don't have, like, live piano players. That's in right. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Anything um, you want to say about this number before you guys do it? It's
3: basically the introductory number for our two characters, right?
5: Yeah. Sets yeah. up the this, this story, essentially.
3: Mm-hmm. Dylan and Jack uh, will be will be met and uh, introduced to you, lovely listener. So um, check it out.
5: All right. Hi. My name's Dylan. Bye. The time I was 11, it was plain to see I'd be the fruit that fell far from the family tree Even though I got in fights and I played hockey My dad always said, there's something different about me So we went to church a lot So the spirit of God could cleanse me of the dirtier thoughts that I got I would sit in the pew of one of many of God's homes and think Damn, Jesus looks hot in them robes My dad started to panic about my sexuality He became a proponent of everything that's manly Like the tits of Pam Lee, Power Tools by Stanley Tried to teach me about the engine in his S. He said, This is the carburetor, the fuel regulator
3: A car in general is a heterosexual generator To help you penetrate or missionary once you're buried And could you pretend to be straight until I'm dead and I'm buried? This is what a vagina looks like, this is where the penis fits It's a little bit mysterious, but the secret is the click It's alright for you to be whatever you wanna be
5: As long as in the end you're something that's a lot like me So I hoped and I prayed every night and day I would wind up almost anything but gay Maybe I could die in a car crash or a lake my living was obviously a gigantic mistake Why was I ever born into this tiny town? Population 700 And no one is brown No one that found sees anything like me Not even on the radio or on TV Thought I'd have to settle down Learn to be a joke Then I saw this show called Aww. Queer as Folk? Yeah. Homosexuals on the cathode tube? Network TV made all my dreams come true There's a world out there I could live there too Otherwise stay here man, what should I do? There's a price you will pay if you're gay in a small
3: town. There's only one way,
6: people say, in a small town. But there's only one way to be gay in
3: a small town. And that's to leave, faggot! Because if you are gay and you stay in a small town They'll drag you around, keep you down in that small town If you stay, you'll be found in the ground in that small town So you gotta leave What about
5: my dad? You gotta tell him, faggot Okay I'm sorry, father no, I didn't mean to hurt you Let's never discuss. I didn't mean to make you cry But tonight, I'm coming out the closet ah! I knew you were a faggot from the time you were nine I'd kill you if I could, you're no son of mine You're dead to me now, and that's just as well Cause you'll never get to heaven, so I'll see you in hell So I packed my bags that very day I couldn't stay now, I was out and gay I said goodbye to my crying mom She gave me a hug, then she gave me a gun she said, Protect yourself, son, from that big, scary
3: place. You say you are gay. I still hope it's a
5: fey. Hey, still a man is a man. And a man's what I raised. So be careful. I will. Don't miss you already, Dylan. I miss you too, mom. I love you. I love you.
1: What was that? <laughs> I missed
5: that last part. What? <laughs> we said one was from the farm and that was dylan and one was from the city with the bars and gyms, where the subway
3: runs with a clickety clack. and if you asked him he'd say my name is jack hey how you doing being adopted wasn't all that bad. I never knew my mom, but I had two dads. that wouldn't get too mad at the things that I did. And in recompense, I tried to be a pretty good kid. But then I was growing up and my pubes, they started showing up. My voice was getting lower, but my penis started growing up. I had to beat it down sometimes twice a day. What I thought about while well, stroking was entirely gay. Huh? I am attracted to the male form. Pause. I consulted my dad about what had come to pass. One dad said,
5: just be careful what you put in your ass. Oh, your dad's being crass because he thinks that it's funny, but don't listen to him. Oh yeah, listen to mommy. Feeling sexual is natural. We'd be worried if you didn't. But you don't have to be gay. It'd be alright if you didn't. We love you as you are. Yeah, you can't fight fate. Besides, I read 90% of people are born straight. So if you feel you're one of them, well, there's worse things to be. You're not
3: under any pressure to, to turn out like we.
0: Like we
7: practiced.
3: It is much more okay to be gay in the city. There are clubs and there's tubs so that life ain't so shitty. There are thousands of ways to be gay in the city. Oh, it's fabulous. We have a great time. We do. There are all types of gays, different ways in the city. There are trendy cafes and the shops that are thrifty. People go to the clubs even when no, but we don't Now we're homebodies Yeah I remember the first time I went to the bar I was only 16 So I tried extra hard It took me three hours To decide what to wear Dolce and Gabbana Or the Republic A banana Got a fake ID But nobody checked They just checked out me Hey And I was set People think it's bad Having two gay dads I think it's nice I'll never forget their advice They say gay bars are real
5: fun They can also be scary So watch out for drug drink. That chicken hawk, Larry people can be real dinks, even if they are fairies.
3: So be careful. Here's a con and some loons, and some puffers, and some ecstasy. Don't do math. Bye. <laughs> Fast forward to the next few years, I'm an out gay man and free in my fears. A thousand one-night stands, a million drinks with friends. Being gay in the city, the party never ends. I'm the cock of the walk, I'm the bell of the ball. I'm the king of gay street and the best of them all. Everybody wants me and I'm good for a ride. But there's a hunger for love that I keep deep inside. I almost gave up already. No, I'm only 18, but I put gel in my hair. And I put on my tight jeans and I go to the club to see what I can see. To see what destiny has for me.
0: All right, as I mentioned before, I'm from Montana, and the song you talked about, you know, the only thing to do in a small town is leave. You know, in my experience, the real small towns in Montana, great places for gay people. Everybody just thinks to the strange little neighbor. They don't, like, mess. They don't interfere.
5: <laughs> yeah, it's just and They're hard. like,
0: oh, they're just odd.
5: Right. <laughs> oh, well, that's great. That's really great. I'm glad to hear that. It's, uh, you know, it's just hard to meet other odd people in the small towns. <laughs> that's yeah. All. You live a lonely little odd life.
3: Yeah, and I—I I, I don't know. I can't speak to. I'm sure there's lots of lovely uh, uh, towns in uh, in Canada for uh, for gay people to live in as well. But um, we also have a lot of uh, a lot of uh, you know intense uh, conservative thought and uh, and religiosity in lots of our small towns, especially in Alberta, where um, where we're as conservative as um, as Hitler in a bow tie. Like we're really conservative. Uh,
0: Rich...
5: Religiosity.
3: Religiosity. (laughs) Is that a word? I
5: don't. It's cool though. It's a.
0: Is it cool? Can I say that? No, it's cool. I'm gonna say that. Yeah. You know, you know who you're sounding like, and you're gonna hate this. Uh oh. Bush. Really? I sound like Bush. You know, he makes up all those
5: words. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know. I think Chris was doing it intentionally, though. I don't think.
3: Yeah, I was kidding. Yeah, Bush doesn't
5: do it intentionally.
3: That might be a word, though, You're probably
5: right. It's just that's my lack of vocab. We should
3: Google that or something. Right. Listeners, please Google that word and email us here.
0: So, so my big number one question here is what got the two of you into rapping?
5: You don't look to me, at least in a contrast. We're, we're writer today. performers. We're, uh, you know, we, we do a lot of different other kinds of uh, uh, performing. We were working on another project together. Um, a little play that we've written called 321 mm-hmm. and um, while we were creating that show the concept for bashed sort of came out uh, the the idea of uh, creating these two uh, gay rap alter personas uh, mine being feminine and chris being teabag mm-hmm. and we performed at a little uh, queer cabaret back home and we had a really great time uh, doing a number for people and we just thought this would be a great way to uh uh, to expand a great idea to expand upon and a lot of fun a, a, a challenge for us as, as uh, performers
3: yeah we love uh, hip hop and rap despite the um, sort of political uh, problems that are sometimes uh, associated with the music it's um, it's it's great music and like Nathan was saying a huge challenge for us as, uh, as live performers to wrap our mouths around uh, that many words um, uh, in a rhythmic way mm, we love hip
5: hop and we love gay and we thought it was a good thing to combine like the chocolate and the peanut butter. <laughs> okay, so in gay hip hop, what do you do to keep your street cred? Uh, wow. Mm, yeah. S- suck suck a cock? <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that the, the logical answer? There? Uh, yeah, I'm on not the sure. streets. <laughs> I'm not sure. Right? It's
3: interesting there's lots of gay rap out there, you know. It's a strong underground movement and sure. a lot of it is very street, a lot of it is very you know, interested. Is there seriously in having... a lot of gay
5: rap out there? There is you actually. Uh, to our surprise, I mean, we obviously did some research, and in every major city has sort of an underground uh, gay rap sort of scene. And there's um, actual festivals that happen to promote these artists. The and... Peace Out Festival. That's right. And there was a great documentary called Pick Up the Mic that sort of uh, featured the the you know the struggle of uh, gay rappers out there trying to make it in a very homophobic industry.
3: You're not going to find it in HMV, but the uh, the internet is uh, simply lousy with it. You can uh, you can check out lots of tracks on MySpace and stuff like that.
5: It's a natural progression for hip-hop being, you know, a voice that sort of started for, uh, uh, you know, lower-class uh, African-Americans who didn't feel as though they had a voice because they didn't feel, you know, they didn't feel politicians or, or, you know, this sort of government really cared about their condition. And so it gave them, empowered them to have a voice to sort of say where they were at with the things. And uh, uh, it's just sort of a natural sort of evolution, I think, for, you know, a different minority group to sort of, uh, to give them a voice. Well, you know how a lot of real rappers get publicity and stuff and, and you guys should take advantage. The beef! Yeah, we thought you about... You gotta have a beef war! Chris and I have talked about, <laughs> we've, we've actually talked about either gay bashing each other out in front of the theater maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of bashed, creator of bashed, bashed in front of bashed.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, starting a beef with uh, some major rapper out there, but uh, we were scared of that. Uh, scared of being shot and stuff like that. We, uh, you know... We love our work, but uh, I'm not even really willing to be wounded for it, let alone die. No. uh, That's... Yeah. yeah,
5: Or bashed. I I don't even... (laughs) uh, uh, I don't know who I would start a beef with, to be honest. I like them. I like them all.
3: I got no problems. I got no problems, and if, uh, and I if think
5: one the of us
0: street cred is going right, no, it's
3: true. <laughs> the fact is, you know, the fact is, is we're theater artists. You know, we're actors and playwrights, uh, right. both of us, um, and we really recognize that even though we've sort of practiced hard and taught ourselves to deliver rap fairly credibly, uh, that there's a cultural difference between um, our life experience and where uh, a lot of the street rappers come from, and, uh, you know, we want to say that right off. That and we're doing it for a, a different thing.
5: reason. We're trying to, we're, we're storytelling, we're, we're, we're telling a gay love story, and this is the, the medium in which we're, we're doing it because we thought it was interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but...
0: Even despite the lack of beef, you're getting some good PR yourself. In fact, I understand last night you were
5: in the belly of the beast, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, we did a little uh, a little promo bit on Fox News. Fox News, y'all. Yeah, it was uh, interesting for sure. Yeah, it was um, pretty crazy. Uh, politically. Did they of...
0: misread the press release that was sent to them? <laughs> was there something where they thought this was going to be a, a happy opera? <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah. About... <laughs> oh, we, I thought we were you know, being brought on the show to actually be gay bashed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I
3: thought they were going to skewer us somehow, uh, that it would be sort of a a shivving. Or maybe they thought it was a
0: rap opera that was a pro-gay bashing. Right.
3: (laughs) They might have thought (laughs) that. They might have actually thought that. It's hard to say. Yeah, who knows? No, No. but the fact is there are individuals at Fox News who are are, uh, fans of the show and stuff like that, and that's how we got on the show. Um, And we're fans of those individuals, but uh, Fox News in general is this terrible propaganda tool for the right wing conspiracy that runs not only your country but ours up north as well. So uh we just want to be super clear about that. We're not down with them.
6: Uh, but
5: but <laughs> but we are down with uh the good people.
3: Yeah, like I say we're fans yeah. of the individuals.
0: Sure. Um however it's got to feel nice to sometimes, you know, You know the big phrase that everybody always hates to be the fact that they're always just preaching to the converted. Mm. So the fact that you get to go on, you know, Fox News, there's probably a whole bunch of people going, holy shit, I
5: think they've got gay people on. They probably were. And (laughs) and to think of, you know, we reached a lot of uh, gay conservative insomniacs as well because Red Eye airs at three in the morning. So, you know, there's probably some, you know some of those guys watching, or...
3: Yeah, that's an important uh, interest group. That's right. The Gay Conservative Insomniacs. <laughs> it could triple our numbers. Totally, totally. We're reaching out to you, Gay Conservative Insomniacs.
0: <laughs> so, uh, do you have anything else that's kind of, like, in the works? So you said you've done some other things, the three, two, one, and Anything else you want to kind of chat about that's in the pipeline, or...?
5: Oh, well, I guess, really, you know, we're both kind of uh, focused on our show right now, and uh, um, sort of... Uh, working that out. Yeah, looking forward to the
3: touring opportunities that appear to be coming up uh, for around America and overseas and stuff like that.
5: There are other projects, you know, that we're both working on at, at, at home, like uh, independently from one another. Mm-hmm. But, you know.
3: We're active artists and such with plays in the pipeline and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But we won't bore your <laughs> listeners with all a of Bible that. A
0: Bible Belt tour in the, in the works?
5: <laughs> That'd be great, actually. That's the <laughs> great
3: thing about a show like this is that they can't send us to any backwaters, you know, they just there is no way to send us to some sleepy little burg, it's uh, it's going to be major cities only. And
5: really, I mean, the problem you're right about the whole sort of preaching to the converted thing. You know, that that's kind of the nature of theater because I think anyone who's going to go see a, a you know a gay rap opera probably isn't going to have a problem with gay. <laughs>
3: They although not. they they may think they have a problem with rap, and that's something that we're uh that we're overcoming and uh, I understand a lot of a lot of gay people feel like they don't like rap, but uh you know i i I, I challenge them to uh to to leap over that and uh, and realize that there's a lot of rap out there that um, that is actually pointed to them and uh, we uh our rap is uh is like that
5: it's storytelling too you know i mean we're just uh, our story happens to be in rhyme with a, a bunch of dope beats behind it yeah.
0: By the way, who, who is your beatmeister, so Our speak?
5: composer is a good friend of ours. His name's Aaron Macri, and uh, uh, he's a, uh He's a genius, he's yeah. a genius.
0: And we'd also like to
3: shout out to our director, uh, the Honorable Ron Jenkins.
5: Very honorable. Very honorable man.
3: And uh, it's at the Zipper Factory. That's correct. That's right. Yeah, um, which is a funky space. It's very comfy and... Uh, you know, you can take your drink up in there. It's, uh, it's a very party space. We like it a lot.
5: Yeah, it's wonderful. The people there are great. It's attached to a little restaurant, so people can go have a bite or mm-hmm. and, you know, and then come check out the show if they feel like it. It's a little funky sort of artist space. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the show's an open run? Is yeah, it's it? an open run right now. Uh, we, run, uh, we have shows Monday, Thursday, two shows Friday, and a show Saturday night. But don't say, hey, that's an open run. I'll I, see I that say, yeah. someday, you know. No, see it now.
3: See it right now. Stop what you're doing and uh, go see it right now. Right now.
0: Because that
5: open run means as long as it's open. As long as people people are coming to see it, we will remain open. Exactly right.
0: All right. Well, Chris
5: Craddock and Nathan
0: Cookout. That's right. I was looking up at the wrong line on the sheet for a second there. Um, Oh, the website too, by the way, you want to? Give that out?
3: Yeah, our uh, our Bash the Musical website is still um, is still getting some kinks worked out, but uh, you can check out homohiphop.blogspot.com for tons of info.
0: Sure you want the kinks worked out? Well, we're trying to work some more <laughs> kinks in, actually. That's the problem. We like it kinky. All right. Well, thanks so much for stopping down. Wish you the best of luck with your run. Thanks for having uh, us. Thanks a lot, Mike. <laughs> The call board. just like to take a second to remind everybody that if you're looking for recording services in New York, I do have a studio conveniently located in Times Square with reasonable rates, and I work on everything from musical theater to pop, rock, R&B, singer-songwriters, bands, a little bit of everything. So uh, if you or somebody you know is interested in doing some recording, let them know, or give me a call at 646-345-3433 to set up a free consultation to discuss your project. All right. Now, first off in the call board, Clay Aiken will return to the scene of his triumphant Broadway debut <laughs> in the Tony Award-winning Best Musical, Monty Python's Spamalot, this fall. He will reprise the role of Sir Robin at the Schubert Theater from September 19th. To January 4th of 2009 There's a lot of other stuff in that press release but I just could not bring myself to use the hyperbole that was used Next, Shrek the musical is currently preparing to begin previews at Seattle's Fifth Avenue Theater Brian Darcy James, recently seen on the New York stage in Next to Normal and the Apple Tree plays the lovable green ogre in the new musical based on the William Steig book and the DreamWorks animation film Also, if you look, there's a couple places online where they have released the first photos of him in his uh, Shrek makeup. Looks better than I thought. Uh, Now, let's see what the musical's like. Next, the Roundabout Theatre Company will present a Broadway revival of Hedda Gabler starring... Tony Award winner Mary Louise Parker in January 2009 at the American Airlines Theatre. Directed by Ian Rickson, who will also helm the upcoming Broadway revival of The Seagull, the limited engagement will feature an adaptation of the Henrik Ibsen classic Penn by Christopher Shin. Previews are scheduled to begin January 6, 2009, with an official opening January 25th. And finally, complete casting has been announced for the national tour of the Tony-winning musical Spring Awakening, which begins a pre-tour engagement in San Diego August 15th. As previously announced, Kyle Ryabko and Blake Bashoff will head the cast in the roles of, respectively, Melchior and Moritz... The duo will be joined on stage by Christy Altomare as Wendla and Steffi D as Ilsa. Spring Awakening will play a pre-engagement tour at San Diego's Balboa Theater, August 15th to the 31st, prior to moving to San Francisco's current theater September 4th through October 12th for the official Tour launch, And the call board is being sponsored by Roy Aria Studios, located at 43rd and 8th, hey, in the same building as us, in the heart of the theater district. They've got tons of great rehearsal spaces, performance venues at a great price, and they've got a staff who has been involved in all aspects of production and truly knows how to help out however you might need it. The spaces are equity approved, and they're easily accessible by Port Authority, Penn Station, and all subways. Feel free to give them a call at 212-957-8358 or send an email to bookings at Studios for any inquiry or to view the spaces.
8: Up Close.
0: All right, well, a couple weeks back, we had a chance to talk to Hunter Bell and Jeff Bowen of the new Broadway show, Title Show, and now we get a chance to talk to the, uh, to quote a song from the show, the secondary characters... (laughs) But by no means secondary in any means, we've got Heidi Blickenstaff and Susan Blackwell here. How are you guys doing?
4: Good. Thank you for having us. Hi, Michael.
0: You want to introduce yourselves quickly so people can connect the voice with the name?
4: My name is Susan
9: Blackwell. I play the role of Susan. (laughs) And I'm Heidi Blickenstaff, and uh, I play the role of Heidi in title of show, the musical.
0: Now you know we're working on everybody's working on the marketing this is one of my favorite shows and it's not just for theater geeks however one one thing that i'm really excited to talk to you about is i do think both of you have stories that i think are your own life story and how you got to this point i think is something inspiring for all the aspiring theater geeks out there i would think so uh (laughs) i'm kind of curious the show of course is about about your journey to Broadway and each step of the way as it hit, you know, the right. Nymph Music Festival and the,
6: yeah.
0: and off-Broadway at the Vineyard. Mm-hmm. And uh, your stories are very different very. as actresses. Okay.
9: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... Um, I'm originally from California, from Fresno, California. Give a shout out to the Central Valley. Fresno. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I was in showbiz really um, my whole life as a child. I started when I was about seven and uh, did all kinds of uh, community theater and um, went to a performing arts high school and just knew that I always wanted to do that and ended up going to Duke University and graduated with a degree in drama. And then literally, like a way back to then, quotes, I packed up a U-Haul and came to the City, and I was pretty lucky in that um, kind of uh, became a part of the theater workforce um, rather quickly. And it wasn't long. I waited tables for about six months at Ellen Stardust Diner. I was a singing waitress, Susan. It's true. <laughs> I was. Wow. how was that for you? Uh, it's like some, such slavery. I it love was,
0: to hear about the, the, oh my the jobs God. people do to get through. And, it you know.
9: was terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. The one thing that was fun about it is that I, I, was, I happened to be a, a waiter at a time when there were a lot of other really fun waiters, and we used to like blow all of our money at O'Flaherty's after waiting tables. Do you at, still know any of those people? I do. I do. Uh, my very good friend Pedro Vasquez and I are still pretty tight from that time. Uh, but anyway. Uh, so I, I wasn't having to wait tables very long before I got my first um, national tour, which was the tour of Tommy. And then when that tour uh, went to South America, that's when Jeff Bowen uh, joined that. And so I met Jeff Bowen very early on. Jeff Bowen is the composer and also stars in Title of Show. That's right. And uh, so Jeff and I met pretty early on in our New York experiences, even though that was in South America. And uh, uh, we stayed friends. And I continued to kind of do uh, national tours. I toured all through my 20s. And, uh, you know, I was always kind of... (laughs) I was always sort of what you you see. And for those of you who have never seen me, I'm kind of this, like... I'm a big, old-school Broadway belter. And I was... I was understudying roles that the roles were like 30 or 40 year olds, and I was 22. So I'm just now growing into parts that I was that that I'm actually age appropriate to play. So it took me a long time to kind of get right for things, and consequently, I did a lot of understudying and a lot of ensemble work, which was great, and I cut my teeth out there on on some really nice production contract, fancy, splashy national tours. And then when I turned 30, I kind of drew a line in the sand and. Um, I said, I don't want to. I don't want to keep touring my life away. Uh, it was great seeing the country and seeing the globe. I had really wonderful experiences out there, but um, I decided. I wanted to start playing roles, and so um, I stayed home <laughs> in New York City, and uh, I worked various jobs, which included temping for Susan Blackwell, who Lauren. at that time worked in an office. And uh, I rule with I yeah. this. totally. God, she was she was a mean boss.
1: No, she wasn't.
9: Not at all. She was awesome. And I just did like data entry and like <laughs> vetting files.
1: <laughs>
9: um, anyway, I did all kinds of. I mean, I coat checked, and I was a toy demonstrator. I mean, you name it, I did it, and and um, I stayed home, and I slowly started amassing small regional uh, supporting roles, and then lead roles, and um, and then somewhere along that line, I I met these monkeys and started doing title of show, and um, it was it was genuinely like a labor of love. It was something that we all we we knew it was special, and we loved doing it, but we had no. Uh, foresight to know that it would actually be something that would um, make money and possibly make us money, and um, we just kind of did it because we couldn't not do it, and we really enjoyed each other. And there were breaks in between, and I was lucky enough to do Meet John Doe at the Ford at Ford's Theater in Washington D.C., and I just won a Helen Hayes Award for that, which makes my head yeah. pop off. <laughs> She's so fancy, ladies and gentlemen. I'm so sub- back up, people. I'm Mister Mrs. Listener.
1: Super fancy. Super fancy. No, but. <laughs>
9: But it's been it's been a great ride and and um, you know it's it's a career that keeps spinning and spinning and spinning and I've managed to sort of stay in the game but my favorite project to date is playing myself in title of show
0: And and like I, said, I think a lot of actresses and actors should you know take a lot of inspiration you know at you've been trooping along and We're now really got the role you know every time they see that brand new newcomer that's come to New York and all of a sudden gets like three roles and <laughs> it's
9: true I mean I think that is definitely not normal for for you know someone to graduate from college or be plucked out of high school and and for them to have you know their career handed to them in a golden basket I, I don't know many people that have that story you
0: know I have to say not in a, in a squashing listening series but I've interviewed a f- so many people on the show that that kind of Was their experience? Really? You know that they did come here, and it just happened very quickly.
6: And and I've always kind of, I've always
0: wondered with the thousands and thousands Uh of actors, how a newcomer ends up with like. Two or yeah, three, it's just you know, major things right are,
4: away. What you, how you type. If you're a young person and you look like a young person, and, and if the planets align, yeah, it's mm-hmm. you know what opportunities greet you if you're prepared to receive those opportunities. That's right, That's too. Hard and, to say. And
9: yeah, I know. I mean, I'm I'm very grateful that this is sort of happening to me a little later than than most. I remember somebody said to me when I was so anxiously awaiting, you know. I never wanted superstardom, but just I was anxiously Something awaiting success. Yeah. I, I wanted that moment to happen. And and I remember I was, I think I was on tour somewhere in some state in, you know, the United States of America. And I was at a bar with a girlfriend and she said, you know, if you haven't made a name for yourself by the time you're 22, you can just forget about it. And I, I heard that and I was like, that's a bunch of bullshit. And it's funny now that this is happening, and I'll say it loud and proud, I'm 36 and I you know, I really have a unique um, appreciation for it because it was not easy. Um, I have, I have, you know, struggled. I've had a lot of sadness. I've climbed, I've gotten my nails dirty climbing that mountain. And so now that it's happening, I'm, I'm so grateful for it. And every second that all of this stuff is happening to us, I'm just like, I I, I, I don't know if I'll ever get over it. I'm very, very appreciative of it.
0: And, uh, <laughs> Susan, your story is quite weird.
9: I'm a weirdo, <laughs> Quite different. Dude. Yeah. Now, to
0: uh, quote, quote the show, did you ever think you'd be singing in a Broadway musical?
4: Um, I would not have <laughs> predicted that for myself. <laughs> I can say that. Um, I'd like to sing. I enjoy singing. Uh, I don't, I'm not, uh, unlike Heidi Blickenstaff, I'm not a gigantic Broadway belter, um, but i enjoy singing and now i enjoy inflicting it on audiences eight <laughs> times a week um, oh they're lucky but so i easy. i came you know i started doing uh to answer your question i started doing community theater when i was little and i thought i'd grow up and be a muppeteer i didn't know what I'd, you know but uh as i got into high school did more and more but i grew up in very rural ohio and did not have a lot of the opportunities that people do when they live in you know larger cities, um, but we did do one musical a year, and I, I did that. And I went to both undergrad and graduate school. Undergrad was Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. I'm so proud of my state school. And uh, I really did. I wanted to be an actor, and I felt like that was the thing that I was good at. When I got. Uh, done with graduate school at the University of Minnesota, I went into the acting company at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis. And my graduate experience and into the Guthrie was purely classical. Um, that was my jam. I'm a completely classically trained actor. Yeah. Stuff that. <laughs> and, uh, and after I had uh, been at the Guthrie for a few years, I decided to move to New York. And I I think I was here like two weeks or three weeks or something and was cast in an off-Broadway play. And I was like, I'm set.
1: I'm to really
4: <laughs> fine. And the whole time that I was doing, you know, off-Broadway plays and stuff like that, I was also um, temping uh, in offices. My first temp job was at Banco Santander of Puerto Rico. Somehow awesome. they had gotten confused and they thought that I was bilingual. And I was the receptionist at Banco Santander of Puerto, Puerto Rico. And the... I totally had, could not speak Spanish, but I think they just liked that I was just, like, this little, like, sort of scrappy freak. <laughs> just me stay. How long I, did that job last? A, a while. Really? I was there for a couple months, and when I left, they had a party for me and gave me a cake. Oh, my God. Yeah. Crazy. But the whole time that I've lived in New York, I've supported myself by, um, you know, I've done off-Broadway shows and a little touch of regional theater, though I never loved leaving New York. And... Uh, a little bit of film work and stuff like that but by and large uh my steady income was from working in offices and a couple years ago i just got really burnt out and i was had for a number of reasons that are enumerated in the show i decided to stop auditioning i had just had it and i was really tired and um of the whole show business game but i never stopped making work with my friends and uh Two of those friends were Hunter Bell and Jeff Bowen. And we've done a lot of very strange, very funny, very weird uh, performance pieces downtown primarily. And uh, one of those pieces happened to be title of show. And it actually was accepted to the first annual New York Musical Theater Festival. And it's just sort of been this little snowball that kept rolling down what we have learned was a very large hill. Yeah, that's been,
0: it's been four four years years now since it started, yeah. yeah, yeah.
4: So it was kind of a crazy thing. When I decided to stop auditioning, I ascended very quickly in the corporate ranks, and it was when we were doing title of show off-Broadway at the Vineyard Theater, we were holding during uh, tech, and we were waiting for a light cue, and the four of us were just standing on stage still waiting for this light to be set. And I just burst into tears and, uh, you know, just realized that I either had, I, I was at a crossroads and I had to make a choice about whether I was going to take one path, which was, you know, sort of big money corporate ascension or take another path, which was, more uncertain big money more creative (laughs) so I I resigned from my big corporate job and uh, and decided to you know Cut it down, so I have I have a, a little bit. I still have a corporate job, but it's a little bit. Um, it's a ma- different one. Now. It's a different one. It's a little yeah, more. Yeah, you're still working
0: a day job. I work. While I work 30 hours a week.
4: I do. I work 30 <laughs> hours a week. And again, I say to anyone listening, if there's anybody else on Broadway doing this, can we please have dinner? I would love that. <laughs> but nobody. I've said that in a few interviews, <laughs> and I ain't got nothing back. <laughs> <laughs> They're all too busy, Susan. <laughs> exactly. They're too busy to read those interviews. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I I work. My my 30 hours a week, and then um, I, I run to the theater, and I have a nap room set up in the Lyceum. I eat my dinner, I take my nap, I wake up, I warm up. Oh, where are they the going, gym.
0: oh, she's such a diva. She needs a nap room. Totally. Exactly. And the blue M&M's picked up. Exactly. <laughs> she's I
4: impossible. won't, no. I won't eat
5: the blue M&M's <laughs> either.
4: And Heidi, don't even try to go into my nap room. Um, but, you know, it's fine. And I was saying the other day, it, I don't think it's any... I don't think it's any more rigorous or challenging. I get tired. I do get tired, but I don't think it's any more challenging than having a full-time job and trying to raise children. Like you cannot I think that would be way, way more taxing. Are you comparing title of show to children? <laughs> no, I'm saying children are are way more demanding. Oh, so nobody. yeah, so that's my little weird story and um it, and it's just goes to show you you just never know where the road's going to take you. So um just when I decided to, you know, let it go, it kind of came back and hit me in the head. Who knew? Crazy, crazy. Yeah, good times.
0: Well, before we continue, maybe we should listen to one of the songs from the Off Broadway cast recording. I think recording. we should, Michael.
4: I think we should. <laughs> Let's
0: your, it. Du- one of your duets here. Totally. You Want to you set this one up? Or?
4: Sure. This yeah. is a this is a song that we like to call secondary characters, and this this song was written. <laughs> in all actuality because the guys who wrote the show our, our dear friends Hunter and Jeff wanted to have a moment where they could leave the stage to like blow their nose and get a drink of water that's true so Jeff kindly wrote the song for us that uh, features the secondary
9: characters yeah. Susan
4: Blackwell and Heidi Blick and, and stuff. it's sort
9: of a, it, it's, a um, it's a nice little arc between our first duet which is called What Kind of Girl Is She where Susan the characters of Susan and Heidi are kind of wondering if if they're going to have anything in common and if they're the you know cut from the same cloth and by the time you get to secondary characters as you'll hear in this song turns out all all
1: goes well <laughs> or does it
0: <laughs> cliffhanger all right let's take a listen
1: now it's only me and you with no one to tell us what to do What do we do? We don't have much time to dance in the spotlight So I'm gonna treasure this Heidi and Susan duet And now may be the only chance I get tonight To enjoy the pleasure of this invisible cigarette Secondary characters are singing a song while the stars are snacking off stage. It was their idea to bring us along and now we're hijacking this page of the script. We're equipped to steer the ship till this trippy skit ends. And by the end of this song, we'll be best friends. For any weirdness, me too. It can be really scary being the new kid. I bet, I'll bet you bet. I do, I bet. And I also want to say that after all we've been through, I'm so glad we've met. I feel the same way, baby. baby calling the shots while the guys are being stored in the wings. We've been left in charge of it all while the plot's unfolding like the Lord of the Rings. Trello J, it'll obey you and made to the very end. And like Frodo and Samwise, you'll be my best friend. My-
4: Uh, what's going on? I don't know. I was just standing here quietly, and Heidi was like, oh, 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 oh.
9: thanks, Susan.
0: Now, kind of speaking of the soundtrack for the moment, uh I know that there have been a couple new things added in the show, and I saw it uh that I didn't recognize from yeah. the numerous times I've listened to the cast. We'd like album. to keep you
9: guessing, keep you on your toes, keep it fresh.
0: Have you heard if there's going to be a new version recorded or the new songs I, cut and added on? Or?
9: I've heard that that is a is a filthy little rumor going around, but no one official has come to us yet with that news. So I know it's something that we, of course, would welcome, and I'm, it would be totally fine. I
4: had an idea the other day in the shower that I haven't told anybody. Tell us tell 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 now. It's an exclusive. You got the scoop, <laughs> Mike. Um, I thought it'd be great if we did uh, a new recording and we did a live recording. Oh, that's a good idea. Just a full-on live recording. Wouldn't that be crazy? That'd be has, fun. Have, has other, have other shows done that? I don't know. Uh, actually,
0: Passing Strange just did. did. did.
9: Oh, really? Yeah. Is yeah. That uh, that the, they the, the cast album. Spike, Spike Lee. No, they did no, like the, a...
0: That's a, no, but the, That's their totally cast different. album was also recorded live right? during the show. Oh,
9: so, so. see, you oh, think my you idea. have a new idea, and then turns There's out the zeitgeist bites you in the ass. Hey, so. the
0: new idea was, Tyler show is pretty much ruined. I think the inside made a musical for for every writer for the next ten years who yeah. wants to write about writing.
4: <laughs> you know what, though? <laughs> this is what I want to say. There, I, I, was, I was. You know that book, There's a Monster at the End of This Book? No. What's starring Grover? that was it's like a fantastic it's a golden book and it's for kids I loved it when I was little and uh I was I'm revisiting that book recently, a little late-night reading, and uh, I was like, this is totally title of show. Through the whole book, he's aware it's a book, and he's, he's manipulating, trying to manipulate the book in different ways, so you can't get to the end of the book, because purportedly there is a monster at the end of the book. I, I like, now I'm remembering I was like, this, this book is very title of show, so, yeah. you know, there's no new ideas. No. It's just how
9: you express those Grover ideas. Grover did it first, Michael. Grover
1: did it <laughs> first, baby.
0: <laughs> well, now, speaking of the move to Broadway... Um, how has the transition been? Have you noticed a difference in the audiences, in the house, and how you play yeah. the show? I mean, it's, it's four people, four chairs. And, yeah.
9: I mean, I have to say, and... I um, I definitely had uh, fears that it wouldn't, um, that somehow it, it wouldn't be a good fit. I think all of us were, were um, kind of crossing our fingers that all would go well. And um, much to all of our uh, delight, I, I really feel like this is such a wonderful... Wonderful end to the story. I mean, um, there were certain aspects uh, of the show when we did it at the Vineyard that weren't as as satisfying as they are now that we have reached the Broadway house. Like, for instance, oh, I shouldn't. Spoilers. I'm I'm not it. i am not going to I I don't know if I should. No. I I won't spoil it. Never mind. But there's Mm -hmm. something that happens at the end of the play that I felt like did not work as well at the Vineyard, and now that we've completed the journey and we are in the Lyceum Theater on Broadway, um, it makes so much more sense. And and um, you know, the audiences, I, I was worried that um, somehow uh, we would feel like, oh God, we're missing that orchestra and we're missing that that lush ensemble and we're missing all of that stuff. And when we got in the space, I was like, we're not missing anything at all. On the contrary, I think I think the five of us fill that space exactly the way this show is supposed to fill that space. And I don't, I mean, I look out into people's faces the when fifth, I have... fifth being
0: your accompanist.
9: That's right, Larry Pressgrove, yeah. who we couldn't make a move without hi Larry Um, but uh, I look out into the audience's faces a couple of times in the show and I am shocked at like these bright shining like smiling faces that are just sort of like shocked with what they're seeing and they they seem pleased (laughs) (laughs) so that tells me that we gotta be doing something right and um, you know we've been we've been filling those houses so I'm you know I'm thrilled about that I feel like we've made a really nice transition
0: well, you know, when I saw the show off, um, when I saw I saw it at the Vineyard and I saw it, you know, on Broadway at the Lyceum. The Lyceum is a very intimate house. Yeah, right. I mean, there's, you know, a couple, there's two balconies, is mm-hmm. it? Yeah. But it's not that deep, you know, overall. No. So I, I really didn't feel like I was in a much more massive theater than actually at the Vineyard. In yeah. a lot of ways, it didn't feel like I was stuck in this. Ca- which I I wanted it to keep its small charm, and I think it did. Yeah,
9: isn't that in- so nice about Broadway theaters? I mean, that was kind of that. I had this crazy idea when I was a kid about Broadway being sort of big and and um, expansive and just like this huge, huge experience. And then when I did my very first Broadway show, which was the Full Monty, I was shocked. We were at the um, at the O'Neill, and um, I was very shocked at how small and just so intimate those Broadway theaters are. And, of course, there are exceptions, like the Minskoff and the Gershwin are huge. Mm. But, but our theater is very— Huge.
0: Are you going to trademark that?
9: Huge. <laughs> you heard it here first. No, I'm so not the first to say that. Um, but the Lyceum is, in particular, like quite, quite, quite intimate and so beautiful. My God, mm. that, the outside of that theater and the inside, it's just ornate and lovely. And uh, am I wrong in saying that it's the first Broadway house? We heard it's it. the oldest continuously running uh, Broadway theater, I think. We're gonna check your facts, nerds. I yeah. think I think we're right in saying that. I'm just saying things, but that it sound is beautiful. Like it is. It's really. It's um. It's quite an honor play to that play in that. They play that song from theater.
0: Guys and Dolls in the lobby. The oldest established, yeah, we, floating morning. Broadway house. In in. The
9: <laughs> <York>. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. That's right. Anyway, we, I know that my head pops off every night when we're doing our little warm up. Uh, 45 minutes before the show starts and I look out into the house with all the lights on and I look at the boxes and just how it's beautiful oh god it's just so it's gilded and lovely I very fortunate to be there it's, it's beautiful, a wonderful, wonderful beautiful theater, theater. theater yeah
0: so so uh, Susan yeah, or or uh, Heidi, it's Heidi's song. So we're gonna play another song here from the soundtrack. I'd like to
9: introduce it. You 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 do
4: that. So this is a song that Heidi sings uh, near the end of the show. Would you
9: call this the eleven o'clock number? I, Not to put I that pressure <laughs> on yeah. you. I think I think it, classically this would be called the eleven o'clock number. She's pretending even it,
0: to smoke a cigarette. Yeah. Here.
9: Even, though <laughs> <at> <laughs> like, mean, even though it happens at the nine
4: thirty. Even though it happens at nine thirty, we'll call
9: it the eleven o'clock number. Go, Susan. Go. <laughs> this is
4: a, a song that Heidi sings. That this is actually. I've said this before, and I'm saying it again now. Um, This really is one of my favorite moments in the show. It probably is my favorite moment in the show. Um, I get to come out on stage and sit with my friends and watch Heidi sing this song from the side. So I sort of watch her in profile sing this beautiful song, and it is um, largely autobiographical. And um, not to raise everyone's expectations, but she sings it wonderfully. And it's called A Way Back to Then.
0: Yeah, and I, and I, this is definitely that song for every, every person who's been yeah. around doing theater for a long time here.
4: Yeah, yeah. So this is Heidi Blickenstaff singing Jeff Bowen's composition of A Way Back to Then. Thanks.
1: Susan.
0: All right, let's take a listen.
1: Dancing in the backyard, Kool-Aid mustache and butterfly wings. Hearing Andrea McArdle sing from the hi-fi in the den i've been waiting my whole life to find a way back to then i aimed for the sky a nine-year-old can see so far i'll conquer the world and be a star i'll do it all by the time i'm 10. i would know that confidence way back to then so I bailed on my hometown and became a college theater dork I was eastbound and down moving to New York so I crammed my life in a U-Haul to find my part of it all but the mundane sets in we play by the rules and plow through the days the years take us miles away from the time we wondered when we'd find a way back to then and when you least expect opportunity walks through the door you suddenly connect with the thing that you forgot that you've been looking for Kick out.
0: You've been mentioning some of the autobiographical nature, of course, of the show. And clearly, you know, the writers have brought a lot of themselves in it. But Mm -hmm. my question with this show is how much direct input did the two of you have into the script?
4: Um, uh, Varying degrees. There were very specific tasks that I was given. I was the guys asked me very, very early on. If I would write a song called Die, Vampire, Die, which is actually the song that I sing in the show, and it's based on the teachings. And I
0: do recommend everybody. I played it several shows back, actually in the first season of Broadway Bullets. So go check, check, check it check out. It
4: out. Um, Die, Vampire, Die, it's it, it's uh, very much about the teachings of uh, Linda Berry, who Hunter Bell and I studied writing with, and um, she taught us that sort of idea, Die, Vampire, Die, about sort of identifying those things that may stop you from making your best work and living your best life, identifying them and stopping them. And um, so I wrote that. I wrote some very specific pieces when I was tasked with doing that. But a lot of the stuff is um, just things that came out in conversation and in rehearsal and the next day you would come in and it would make its way into the script. And I will say that the yeoman's work of braiding mm-hmm. all of that together really did fall to Hunter Bell and Jeff Bowen and our director, Michael Barres who acted as sort of a dramaturg as well. And they just were so, I think, just very smart and very, I don't know, I don't even know what word to describe, just Fastidious mm-hmm. about about making sure that because it's a complicated little structure, mm-hmm. this piece has a complicated little structure, and um, I think they did a, a great job with that. Yeah,
9: yeah. and uh, uh, there were there were a lot of things in 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 the show that Hunter would come in with scenes that um, you know had happened in real life, and he would have boiled it down to a tight you know scene and um a lot of times we would we would read it around a table and um and then hunter i don't know i don't know how writers do this especially when they're in a highly collaborative atmosphere when his work is just being um you know, we love him and we support him, and we also know how good he is. So there is a lot of trust there. But there were times when we would say, "Can I say this instead?" or "I wouldn't say it like that. How about this?" And um, and both Hunter and Jeff would have to, um, you know, put that ego aside because we are playing ourselves, <laughs> and we have intimate knowledge not only of ourselves but of what exactly happened to us to get us to that scene lit, and. Um, And most of the time, both Hunter and Jeff were very generous with um, letting us say what we wanted to say within the parameters of what the scene needed to do. And um, so in that respect, that was new for me because, like I said, I come from a world of kind of more um, big production theater where no one ever asked me what I think. And um, I mean, literally no one ever asked <laughs> me what I think. It was about a lot of times I was a replacement and the show was already in place and I fit the costume and went in and, you know, there I was in Jekyll and Hyde on tour. And this was really the first time that I was asked to collaborate and I was asked to Um, formulate an opinion about not only the things that I was involved in, but if something wasn't working, there would be moments where it was like, let's talk about it. And um, consequently, I have completely developed... Um, something in me that had never been there before, which I am so um, thrilled about, and for better or for worse, the new projects that I'm lucky enough to be a part of now, I am much more likely to want to collaborate because of this experience. And I sort of feel like because I've been in it with these super, super smart people, I... um, I know about really basic structure now and I have an opinion and I wanna I wanna say what's what now which is thrilling. That's it's really fun to be um, to, to know you have a voice and that's totally new for me. I, I had made a decision um, some time ago that
4: I and it was part of the reason why I sort of wanted to step off auditioning, which is I just wanted to do work that I loved with people that I loved and respected and knew that from a collaborative standpoint they had my back and um, when so you made
0: that decision did you ever think that Broadway was still in your cards
4: I, I didn't think like that <laughs> I wasn't thinking like that because I guess so no I guess not um, but I just knew that I, I had very specific ideals about if I was going to do creative work. What that? How I would make those choices about what those projects were going to be and who those collaborators were going to be. So, um, but how thrilling! To mm. your point, how thrilling mm-hmm. to get the opportunity to make something on this level okay. and to see work through for such an extended period of time with collaborators. And those relationships have really deepened over time. It's amazing. And it's, you know, with collaboration comes conflict. And that, we knew that we didn't want to be behind the music, meaning we didn't want to garner all this success and adulation. And then you know, shortly down the line have the wheels come off because of infighting and have the the band break Yeah. So um, we have taken it as a challenge and sometimes we do better than others to use it as an opportunity also to, you know, when, when issues do arise to meet them head on and resolve them clean as you go, if you will. And um, sometimes we're better at it than others. But uh, these are people that I think we've I've had in my mind that, and we've said to each other out loud, that we want to collaborate with for a very long time. And when you say, I want to collaborate with you for years, you treat each other differently than, I just want to collaborate with you on this project, and it's more disposable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know what I was answering when I started talking about that. But wow. I think it was something really important.
9: Well, I mean, not only do we do this Broadway show together, but, you know, we also want to continue having Thanksgivings together. So we will we will work very hard at, you know, making a tight Broadway show for y'all, but also uh, making sure our friendships are happy and healthy as yeah. well.
0: Well, hopefully you're having Thanksgivings together while still doing the show. Hope
1: so. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And on that note, uh, we probably should wrap up. I know you guys have a very busy schedule going on, Can but I go th- do
9: title of show I at know. the Lyceum <laughs> Theater on Forty Fifth Street. Michael, thank you so much for having us. Thanks, it was Michael. great to be here.
0: All right, thanks so much, and best of luck with your run. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you.
1: On the boards,
0: a new show playing at the Fringe, Paper Dolls, uh, deals with the world of a oh semi legit daily tabloid newspapers, and uh, up to the playwright is Patrick Huganin. And he's had a lot of experience with this. And so I, we're I, not only going to talk about his show, Paper Dolls, but a
2: little bit about the maybe world. Maybe he'll get he, some gossip, too. Yeah. <laughs> the world has <laughs> inspired I'll try. it. Uh, yeah, my, I, I uh, worked extensively in celebrity journalism. I uh, My first job as a newspaper writer is with the Russian Malloy column at the Daily News, which is like the page six of the Daily News. It's a big gossip column. It's daily. A lot of running around to get those celebrity scoops. And uh, it provides a lot of material. And in the play, you actually have rival Tabloid newspaper, gossip columnists. And the main character is this girl, Claire Cunningham, who is so good at it, she's the best at what she does. And then suddenly her own life becomes the source of tabloid material and kind of freaks her out. Because, you know, there's nothing a gossip columnist hates more than being gossiped about. <laughs> so that's sort of that's sort of the deal there. And uh Yeah, it's, you know, it's an industry that has all the little, you you meet all these sort of ambitious and cunning journalists, and, you know, they have their rivalries and their romances, and, you know, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that's pretty interesting stuff. So, what led you into the lucrative world of playwriting? Oh, right. Yeah, well, actually, my my degrees in playwriting, it was actually a tumble that I took into the lucrative world of celebrity gossip, which is the the thing that sort of caught me off guard, but... uh, yeah, I decided, you know, there's so much there's so much material with these people. I just couldn't I couldn't leave that stone unturned. <laughs> well, now you
0: know Newspapers like the Inquirer do certain things to make sure they don't get sued. Did you yes. change any names or have to do anything in your show? I was show pretty to <laughs> good. It's pretty good. You know, they
2: do, they they do a lot of naughty things in the play, but um, all their journalism is great. You <laughs> know, like that that part is funny. But I, uh, there there are some sort of thinly veiled references to actual media figures and celebrities, and you'll see a lot of like the Christie Brinkley divorces in there all over the place because I was writing about that during the day, and then I'd come home and write about you know write the play at night. So there's a lot of stuff that made it in there, but it's all true, so I can't get sued. <laughs> so, what have been some of your other stories with, I mean, you're a pretty young guy, right? yeah. How, yeah.
0: so how long was your experience working with the, the tabloids?
2: I was there for a year, because basically, well, I, I'm still there, I should say, but I was uh-huh. at Russia Malloy for a year, and now I do more general entertainment reporting, because a lot of people, you know, when you work at a gossip column, your job as a young guy is is you go out at night. You go out every night. You go to the film premieres and the fashion show after parties and all this stuff, and you party, and you talk to people, and you get gossip, and then that's great, and that's really fun, and it's glamorous and whatnot, and then you come in at 10 a.m., and you write the column, (laughs) and that's, that's the part that kills a lot of people is getting up and doing that. So, yeah, there's a little burnout factor. <laughs> so when you're at these parties, do any of them realize who you are? Yeah, you know, you try to be,
1: <laughs>
2: you try to be like, incognito, but they can really see you coming a mile away. I have a good story about, uh, you know, a lot of times I would be the one who had to go out and ask the embarrassing question when we were working on a story. There was one story we were working on. There was a rumor that in, uh, in Factory Girl, a movie unfortunately few people saw— Sienna Miller plays uh, Edie Sedgwick, you know, the muse of Andy Warhol, and she has this really hot sex scene with Hayden Christensen, who plays Bob Dylan. And the rumor was that it actually got a little too hot and that actually there was some stuff left on the cutting room floor where you can see that it's not acting. You know, they really (laughs) do what they're doing. So, of course, they send me out. This is like, I don't know, maybe like month four or something to go find Sienna Miller. And I had to ask her to her face, you know, did you have sex with Hayden Christensen for real? And, you know, I try to phrase it in, like, a nice way. I was like, yeah, I loved Brown Bunny. There's a strong tradition of having sex on film. There's nothing wrong with it. But her publicist is also the publicist to, like, Lindsay Lohan and all those other, like, troubled Hollywood bad girls. So she sees me coming a mile away. I mean, and before I can even get the question out, she's sort of like, oh, Patrick, it's so good to see you. Meet Sienna's mom. (laughs) So they know. Sometimes they can just shut you down right at the door. (laughs) (laughs) So how long has Paper Dolls been in the works? yeah, I started it in uh, January and uh, applied to the Fringe, assuming that I would not get into the Fringe. I thought the play was a mess, but I assumed that people, maybe when they're reading it, would only read like the first 30 pages, which were pretty okay and pretty funny. And then, uh, and then I got in, and I found out on a day when I was home deathly ill from work, which turned out to be a godsend because it was a Friday. And I basically picked up the play and started rewriting it and didn't stop until like Monday afternoon. And ever since then, it's been, in, it's been in production. So how do your colleagues feel about the show? They're good. Well, one of my colleagues, <laughs> there's a, my, my close, the person I work with most uh, at the Daily News is Joe Piazza, who's another columnist. And we work a lot together. We do different blogs for, like, Fashion Week or the Emmys. And she sort of, uh, she didn't know I had even written the play until she got the press release about it. <laughs> and she said, oh, hey, you wrote a play? And I was like, uh-huh. And she's like, is it about me? <laughs> I was like, no, 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 no. And she's like, okay, cool, I'll write about it. <laughs> so they've been supportive. So, now, are, are you producing this yourself as well, or
0: did you find- I'm Not, videos? I have uh,
2: I have two production companies actually working on. Uh, one is called Lively Productions and the other is Metropole Inc. And they're both, you know, God says I could not have done this without them because, you know, Metropole Inc. have actually produced Fringe shows before, which is like so great to have someone who knows the deal with what that festival is like because it's great and it offers you all these opportunities, but it's also a little bit of a free-for-all. You know, you share the theater space, you elbow your way into your storage, you know, it's like—it's it's sort of like college.
0: Were you were you extremely involved with, like, you know, the rehearsals, casting, and production, or did you kind of let the production companies take their thing? Or you know, house?
2: two of the—the uh, the, the main character and actually her nemesis in the show were in my mind when I wrote the show. So they were on board. It's Jen Jamula and Allison Goldberg. And then uh, we found this, you know, our marvelous director, Gay Taylor Upchurch. And I sort of said to her, you know, well, you should, you should really be the one who casts these other two roles— Um, And we we auditioned a lot of people, and we actually ended up with two people, Billy Magnuson and uh, Ashley Morris, who both went to North Carolina School of the Arts with GT, and they're fantastic. And uh, Billy Magnuson, you know, he has like the sort of stud role of the play because he's the movie star brother of the main character, so we needed someone really good looking. And he, for anyone who watches daytime drama, he's on As the World Turns, and he plays this guy who's I call him Cougar Bait on the show. Like his whole plot line revolves around sleeping with his mom's best friend. It's great. <laughs> but anyway, to answer your question, I was uh, so I, I was semi-involved, but uh, you know I love being able to hand it off and have it be out of my control. <laughs> like now, right now as we speak, they're doing the tech rehearsal, and it's really I realize that I actually won't see them again until opening night. So whew, it's uh, you know I'm I'm done. <laughs> Now, the difference between the New
0: York Post and the Inquirer. I'm <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you want to throw the Daily News? I the work the Daily News, yeah, so I, I can't okay, speak about the Post. Okay, well, the you know, okay the, okay, the
2: Inquirer. First of all, the Inquirer is a, a weekly. I would say it's more online with those, like, supermarket checkout magazines. Like, you know, it's up there with... Um, like Star and th- those kind of like sort of tabloidy magazines, which are marvelous and I adore, and I actually write a column about those called Newsstand Junkie on Fridays. But uh, the the Enquirer is so fascinating because it actually gets the best celebrity gossip, and everyone just brushes it off like no one believes it because half the time they're writing about like alien babies in a cave, so no one no one thinks that uh, boy, the yeah, musical. exactly. That, didn't that come out of the Enquirer? Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. See, and that was true. It turned into a musical, but. Uh, They, you know, people people read it and sort of take it with this huge grain of salt, and then they actually break a lot of celebrity news in that thing. And when I was writing the column, we would, like, read it avidly, and then we would actually pull out a lot of the gossip and use the resources we have in a newspaper to report it. And sometimes it would be, like, this stuff that was, like, so defamatory or, like, seemed so scandalous that you couldn't even really write about it. And then four months down the line, it would totally turn out to be true. It would become, like, accepted fact. And you would look back and say, "Oh yeah, the Inquirer was right about that.
0: uh, Where does Richard Gere and the Gerbil fall?
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, that was before my time. I think he he
0: denies that. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) So when when your playwriting career takes off, what kind of dirt is in your...
2: uh, Oh my God! Well, (laughs) you know, it's—I've been pretty lucky. You know, one of the impetuses of the play for me is that if I was written about, you know, especially in the manner that the main character in the play is, which she really—some shit hits the fan. (laughs) Pardon my language—and she, uh, you know, she actually ends up hiding on the roof of her building because she can't bear to see anyone. Which is probably what I would do. (laughs) So, dirt on me, dirt on me. I mean. You know, actually, when I, went, when I got the job at Rush Malloy, I was vigilant because, you know, there are all these websites like Gawker.com that write about journalists, and they're always pulling stuff off people's Facebook profiles. You know, they always find that picture of you, like, doing a keg stand naked. You know, like, they, they find stuff like that. So before I went to my first day of work, I untagged myself in all these photos where I was, like, lying on the floor eating a sandwich or, you know, like, <laughs> this mm-hmm. stuff where I was like, we'll just leave this behind. I'm an adult now
0: now i think a lot of the the people that really get the the most bad image in the public are the photographers mm. Um in, yeah. in this group. And, I, and I'm curious kind of your experience. Do you know some of these photographers? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and how different is your job from the photographers? You know,
2: paparazzi get a lot. They get a bad rap. And, uh, you know, it's it's really funny. Whenever I go to L.A., it's like a, it's like I'm an exchange student there. I feel like I'm in a foreign culture because the paparazzi there are so extremely different from New York. I mean, in New York, celebrities actually have some degree of privacy. And uh, in L.A., oh, my God, I remember I was there for the Emmys, and I just saw this, like, flickering ball of light coming down the street from, like, three blocks away. It's just, like, 15 people ringed around someone who I can't see, and they're just moving, you know, like this in one unit. And the flashes are going off like crazy. I mean, it was like that New Year's Eve ball that drops in Times Square. This is what it looks <laughs> like. And they come close to me, and I sort of start following, and you can peek into the middle. Like, I stand on my tiptoes and look over the ring of photographers. Paris Hilton's in there, you know, and I'm like, uh Oh, I see how this is so they you know they, they, they yell and scream and you know elbow their way to get these shots and uh, it's um, I, I'd, I'd like to think that I'm like a little bit more genteel you know I try to even when I'm asking something really offensive I try to be sort of like uh, charming about it or, or give, you know you can always say well no I don't want to talk to you um, where you can't always say, no, don't take my picture. <laughs> well, besides the one where the publicists kind of, you know, kind
0: of uh, cockblock you yeah. on, on the question, what are some of the more uh,
2: offensive or embarrassing questions you've been forced to ask somebody? <laughs> well, um, you know, when, when Anthony Pelicano was going to trial, this was, this was No one in Hollywood wants to talk about Pelicano, who, for anyone who doesn't know, is this private detective that was just convicted of, like, wiretapping clients' phones or the, the phones of people that his clients were suing. I mean, he was really – he did a lot of stuff that was – or he was accused of doing a lot of stuff that was not exactly legal. And he just went to a huge trial for it. And, uh, you know, I would, I would go out when he was going to trial and be like, well, who can, who can I ask about him? And uh, Mike Myers had actually had a run in with him, Austin Powers, you know, back when he was going to do the Sprockets movie. Uh, That, you know, that got called off. There was some kind of legal drama. And I I don't even remember the exact story. But, you know, he he retained Pelicano. And in my impression, uh, Pelicano actually helped him. I I read this, you know, article from the L.A. Times. I'm not saying anything that hasn't Mm -hmm. been reported before. So that's why I'm (laughs) I'm, I'm being legal here. But... uh, so I was like, well, you know, I'll ask him about it. Because maybe, you know, maybe the guy gets this, like, reputation as a sleaze, but he's not so bad. And Mike Myers will say something like, oh, you know, it's, it's terrible he's going to trial, actually. You know, he was a pal or something. Yeah, I was like, maybe. I tried to tell myself this. And the occasion I chose to do this was uh, on the green carpet at the Shrek 3 premiere. And I said, you know, we were talking about Shrek, and he was being very charming and very funny. And I was like, well, you know... He always asks this kind of question last <laughs> so that they can run away from me. It's like, well, so what do you, uh, you know, what do you think about Pelicano going to trial? And he just, I've never seen, you just picture Austin Powers suddenly just getting livid. I mean, uh, he just and he just walked away. I was like, oh God, okay, this didn't go well. And then the publicist is like, are you Patrick from the Daily News? Just just hang out for a minute. Jeffrey Kotzenberg wants to come over and talk to you. So this is the head of DreamWorks Animation. And for all the gays out there like myself, he is the man who created The Little Mermaid. So that day I actually got yelled at for being inappropriate by the man who created The Little Mermaid, which was actually one of the few times I've been tempted to cry on the job, but you, there's no crying in gossip. You have to go home. So that's, yeah, that's bad. But, you know, other people are really, you know, sometimes people, it's impossible to throw them for a loop. And, uh... Glenn Close is one of those people. She, I think, is my favorite person I have met because I went to the Damages premiere, her FX show Mm -hmm. that she has. And the show, you know, it, it was right before it came out, and the show is about her playing this high-powered New York attorney with this like beautiful young protege played by Rose Byrne. And the poster was Rose Byrne's face with like a gash torn in it, and Glenn Close is like peeking out. So it was like not thinly veiled, like vaginal reference. <laughs> so if you googled it, every pre- every bit of press you found before it came out was like these lengthy discussions on the lesbian message boards where these people, who are basically, you know, fans of Glenn Close who have been waiting since Fatal Attraction to see her play. Something where she actually might be a lesbian. We're just going crazy. So everyone on the red carpet was asking, like, "Oh, Glenn, you know, what was it like to play a lawyer? Do you like lawyers? Do you know any good lawyer jokes?" You know, everyone was asking the same thing, and she got down to me and I said, "Well, you know that the the main fans of the show, it's all the lesbians love this show. So are they going to be disappointed or not?" And I, you know, I she hesitated, and I thought she was going to say, "Well, I don't know," and then she said. That's a that's an excellent question. There's so much lesbian subtext in this show, and actually, I think I just want to control Rose Byrne and control her body. I mean, it was like she totally ran with it, and it was a great interview. So that that when that kind of thing happens, then you feel really good. All right, so Paper Dolls is uh, opening August 13th and runs to the
0: 23rd. Yep. Um, I'm assuming is there a website or something that people there find is, all uh, the, it's, the specific you know weird schedule of the fringe?
2: It is www.paperdollstheplay.com because paperdolls.com is actually a website about paper dolls, like out of cut out of paper. I thought it would be porn, or something, <laughs> but it's not. It's it's really boring. So uh, paperdollstheplay.com and you can find all the dates on there. You click on the date you want, it'll take you right to buy tickets. So come out and see it. It's gonna be a good time. It's you know it's short, it's funny. And it has, a, it has a really hot guy who spends a lot of time with his shirt off, so there's really something for everyone. All right. Well, Patrick Hoogannan of the, uh, the Daily News. Daily News. Yes.
0: And uh, thanks for coming by and chatting about your play. Best of luck and in the fringe. Thank you very much. The Producers Perspective.
6: Hey, everybody. It's Ken Davenport with The ProducersPerspective.com Volume 3. I was recently asked to take a look at some materials for a Broadway musical that is in development, and the developers were talking specifically about whether or not they should put a star in the show. Now, of course, the theater is filled with opinionated people, and I'm actually one of them, hence the podcast. But what I try to do is bite my tongue for a little bit anyway, and do some research. Take a look at the data. Figure out just how a star has helped or has hurt new musicals in the modern musical theater. So here's what I did. I took a look at some of the longest running shows in Broadway history. Here they are in order. Number one, Phantom. Number two, Cats. Number three, Les Mis. Number four, A Chorus Line. Number five, Oh Calcutta. We always forget about Oh Calcutta. Anyway, uh, number six, Beauty and the Beast. Number seven, Rent, eight, Chicago, nine, Miss Saigon, 10, The Lion King. Now if you take a look at that list, what do nine of those 10 shows, the longest running shows in Broadway history have in common? Not one of them opened with a star. So in my opinion, don't grab the guy from Hollywood. Work on making the show the star. That's the key to a long runner and the history and the data prove it. In news shows, S.T.A.R.S. become very expensive insurance policies for those of us who may lack the confidence in our own material. S.T.A.R.S. can actually make us lazy. And we all know they ask for a lot of amenities that drive up costs, from car service to flights to, yes, specialty wallpaper. That is a true story. And the other thing about S.T.A.R.S. is that once you go there, you can never go back. My suggestion to producers is to save the S.T.A.R.S. for the revivals. Like the one revival out of those 10 longest-running shows in Broadway history, Chicago. The revivals need them. They need that little extra spark. Now, here's what's even more interesting. When you look through that list again, look at how many musical theater stars were born from those shows. I count at least as many as there are shows on that list. So my mantra, I look to make stars, not count on them. This is Ken Davenport from ProducersPerspective.com.
1: On the boards.
0: I can pretty much tell just by the title that there is going to be a cultural mashup going on in <laughs> the new musical playing at the <laughs> Fringe Festival called China, the Whole Enchilada. So uh, we've got playwright and... Uh, Mark Brown here to talk about the show. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me here. (laughs) Cultural mashup. So what is China, the whole
7: enchilada? Uh, It is the entire history of China in 90 minutes. Okay. 4,000 years of history (laughs) mashed into 90 minutes, um, plus Fu Manchu, Ming the Merciless, Uh, Ricardo Montalban is in it. Star Wars. uh, Lord of the Rings. (laughs) It's sort of a... Well, it's three guys. It's three guys doing the whole story. One guy is an expert on China. The other guy is afraid that China is overthrowing the world at any second. And the third guy keeps getting China confused with Japan.
1: (laughs)
0: Now, I, I see. Is there some inspiration taken here from uh, shows such as the complete works of William Shakespeare abridged? And...
7: Yes, yes, yes. It, it is like the complete works of William Shakespeare or complete history of America. Uh, the tough thing that I ran into was with like complete history of America. We know that history. So it's easy to make fun of it right away. Uh, with China, there was sort of let me teach you right before I make fun of this thing about it and then sort of make fun of it so uh but i've had there's been several um people born and raised in china who have seen it and said i got all the history right
0: well that's always good to have, have it <laughs> right <always> good. <laughs> <laughs> except the fortune cookie i lie about the fortune cookie but who cares so and it's this is a musical as well right <laughs> so unlike and, complete works of Shakespeare. and it's a musical yes yes so where, do the, where did the musical numbers stem from? And, you know, I, I just have playwright it Danny. You didn't do the music, did you? Or, or did I, you? Wrote,
7: uh, uh, I wrote the lyrics and the basic melody line. And then I went to my friend Paul Murkovich, who, who for about four months thought it was a joke. Because <laughs> we kept coming up with different rhymes, and then finally got close to w- workshopping the, sh- the show. He's like, this is real? This is, this is a real <laughs> show? <laughs> uh, and Paul is the musical director for Pink and Cher and Hilary Duff um uh Janet Jackson fantastic uh musician so I went to him with the basic melody and then he made it much much better than I ever could have imagined uh and mostly you know if we if we laughed about it it was you know we'd keep it in
6: well
0: before we continue, maybe it's time to hear one of the songs from the show. Do you, do you wanna is it, does the title song need any setup here? The title song is is, is uh, no it's the welcoming song. So the welcoming the audience and sort of what they're gonna sing. Alright, so here it is the, the China the whole enchilada.
10: Chop chop, hurry up, come on, let's go. That old slow boat is way too slow. The Orient Express ain't fast enough for me we we've got a lot to see 4,000 years of history 4,000 Oh crap We gotta go there's Chairman Mao, Infected foul. will show you how you should kowtow. There's Kung Pao and Al General Sao. There's Kung Fu, Shih Tzu, Pangu, Bamboo, Tai Chi, Bruce Lee, Kanji, Yangtze, Shangtze, and Baroque Xiong There's Peking, Beijing, they're the same thing, Chunking Nanjing, I Ching, Ling Ling, Dragons hiding, and some tigers crouching. There's Maoism, and Daoism, and Communism, and Legalism, and why the hell are they so damn good at math? A lot of Jimmy trying china. Just a small reminder that we're selling my piñatas Yes, it's China. I hope it's not a signer. But I think I have a This won't play in Carolina, cause it has a concubina, And I think you're gonna find a that our show is as
0: a Yes, it's China. The whole Lynch So the fringe. How has the fringe been treating you The, the show's already up and running the and... fringe the people at the fringe are fantastic.
7: I can't speak highly enough of these people. They are unbelievable uh uh sort of anything we've asked for they've they've given us they've put us we're a small musical, but they put us in this great venue um yeah, I mean they're really, really fantastic. I love. You're in a pretty large venue, aren't you? We are 500 seats. <laughs> <For> 500 <laughs> seats for the, uh, and they've blacked out some seats. I think it, it holds 700, so they've they've you know, blocked off some of uh, the seats. But yeah, we're in a 500 seat house, so it's probably be hard to sell out during the fringe, but uh, we're hoping. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but they have been. They've just been fantastic. Every you know from Elena on down, they've just been really amazing. Our tech rehearsal went really smoothly, everyone was great. Technically, we had our opening, we had some technical problems and they were right there running in, fixing stuff. So
0: yeah, I, I, I love them. So what are some of the most uh, interesting China, uh, tidbits from Chinese history that you were unfamiliar with before?
7: Well, it's interesting because this, this came about because my wife and I adopted a little girl from China. And uh, uh, a lot of people read books about China before going over to adopt. I know the first time I adopt a child, I'm always like, let's make fun of her culture. Let's make fun of her culture. <laughs> and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted her to grow. It's the, it, I got the Parenting by Don Rickles book. Um, uh, yeah, well, we actually don't really make that much fun of the—we uh, <laughs> uh, make fun of the U.S. a lot uh, and the British. But uh, I didn't really know anything about the, the history of China and read, I just became fascinated with it. So the, and everything that they invented, um, just sort of everything is in there. But then it became more and more of like how badly the world has treated China over— thousands of years, and they've just, they constantly invaded, like, a, a giant revolving door in China that, you know, the Mongols come in, and the Manchus come in, everyone, the British come in with their opium, so they've just been ruled by other people for the longest time, um, but the, some of the more interesting things, well, I mean, mm-hmm. sort of the more macabre things of uh, death by a thousand slices is always mm-hmm. fun.
0: Death by a th- thousand
7: slices, uh, slow slicing is a way that they, they uh, would execute people. Here, you know, here we electrify them. Uh, you, much uh, more humane. Much more humane, <laughs> jolting them. <laughs> uh, but in China for a long time, they would um, slow slice. It was death by a thousand slices and they would slowly slice the person to death. The <laughs> arms come off, then the legs, and then they would cut, and so the heart would come out. It's, you can actually see pictures of it online.
0: The Bush administration is hearing this and trying to figure out a way to not call this torture. Yes. I think they're already working on that. Yes. Yeah. It's not it's not torture. It's you know,
7: <laughs> not covered in the Geneva Convention. Uh, um, what, uh, uh, Chinese checkers isn't Chinese. Um, <laughs> It's a German game called Uh that I think it was Mattel changed the name to Chinese checkers to make it sound more exotic. A bigger question.
0: What do they call Chinese food in China? Lunch. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. We were there. In I was in China for
7: about a month. And on the third, I think it was the third day, some people we were with said, you know what, I'm really, really tired of Chinese food. Like, well, you know, we're going to be here for a month. You better get used to it because that's where we are. Uh, uh, but, yeah, no, lunch. It's pretty darn good food over there.
0: All right, we're going to play another song here from, the, from your demo. Um, Fantastic. Do you want to s- s- uh, introduce this song? This
7: is, uh, we, we, as we march through time, uh, we come to um, the student demonstration at Tiananmen Square which, th- while you're there and you get the official tour, they never mentioned the student demonstration. Uh, and this is a song about Tiananmen means uh, gate of heavenly peace. So this is a song about the uh, student demonstration in
0: 1989.
10: All right, let's take a listen. In the spring of 89, who bang, he passed away And they came from miles around Gate of Heavenly Peace, A.K.A. Tiananmen Square. Tiananmen Square, you idiot! The students prayed for his soul, and they prayed for democracy, and they prayed light would shine on the Gate of Heavenly Peace. Well, the ground cracked open and the sky grew dark the land, and the devil rolls up, and he declared, I'm gonna crush your faith into the ground, I'm gonna crush your faith into the ground, I'm gonna crush your faith Happens
0: got the show at uh, what, the Pace Pace Theater, Pace University? Pace University, the Michael Schimmel uh, Performing Arts Center. And that's running through August 24th? August 24th, yes. Is there a website they can go to find out the weird, wonderful Fringe scheduling of this? Uh,
7: well, they could go to, to, to uh, the Fringe, their um, website, which I think it's fringenyc.org, or uh, if they want to come just see. They just want to come see the enchilada people. Mm -hmm. It's com, And uh, you've got room for everybody to come on in? We have plenty (laughs) of room. Bring your friends. Bring your overweight friends. We can, you know, accommodate everybody. Bring in China. Bring 1.3 billion people. (laughs)
0: We've got room. All right, Mark Brown, uh, thank you so much for coming in and talking about China the whole enchilada and sharing the music with us. Well, thank you. I hope you have fun with the rest of your run. Oh, thanks so much.
1: On the boards.
0: The Grecian Formula is a new comedy taking place at the Fringe, which explores all the various uh, theatrical histories in a very comedic way associated with who else? The Greeks. We have playwright Carter Ann McGowan here with us to talk about the show. How are you doing?
8: I'm good. How are you?
0: Good. So uh, first thing is, uh, tell us a little bit about the Grecian formula here.
8: Well, like you said, it's a comedy about uh, the beginnings of drama and about all the backstage machinations that went on uh, to create the art form. And uh, hopefully the audience will recognize a lot of those things that we uh, still consider part of the art form and part of the backstage uh, drama behind theater. Uh, it's kind of, someone described it to me when they saw it as theater for people who love theater. And I think that's really what it is. There's a lot of commentary on theater in it, and a lot of insidiness that uh, some of our insidiness. Insidiness. been watching uh, too
0: much Colbert.
8: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's,
0: it's,
8: it's truthy too. There's truthiness and insidiness uh, in this in the show, and uh, some of our audience seem to really like the references we make to other drama of the past and of of the present. Uh, but it is a comedy, and there is a lot of laughter. So
0: So now, are there characters in this? There are characters
8: in this. (laughs) Um, Yes, I'm talking big picture, aren't I? Uh, There are many characters in this. There are 14 actors in our show. So it's kind of a huge, huge undertaking, this show. Um, We've got uh, the wily slave and his wife who are threatened with... uh, being split up by Thespiotis, who if you are into theater history, you may recognize Thespiotis as uh, Thespis, who is credited as the father of drama. And in our play, Thespis may not be exactly the father of drama, but the father of convincing someone else to write drama. Um, We have a tyrant uh, and his seer. We have um, Sock and Buskin, who are multi-purpose comic guys, who, uh, if, you, if you've ever heard of Sock and bus, Buskin, that's what the comedy and tragedy masks are actually called. They're Sock and Buskin. Sock is the comedy mask, Buskin is the tragedy mask. Um, so they are multi-purpose uh, clowns throughout the You're show. So sorry,
0: nice. yeah. <laughs> yep, they are Swiss Army
8: Knives? Yeah. Yeah, they are. Uh, they're in every scene. And it was funny when we were casting the show, we thought, oh, these were small roles. And then we realized, no, 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 they're huge roles. They're in every scene in the show as different characters. Um, but yeah, 14 actors, some of them playing multiple characters, uh, all in Greek costumes. So it's a huge shoot, huge undertaking. And... Uh, you know, kind of the thing you, you do at the Fringe because you say, where else are we going to do this except at a place like the Fringe where where you can get away with these things. And uh, we think we've successfully gotten away with it. So.
0: So what was the, the impetus, the inspiration for you writing this show?
8: Um, there were a few, and one of them is almost too depressing to talk about, but what the hell? Um, <laughs> one of them, can I say that? One of them uh, was, it was right after 9-11 when I started to think about this show because I was in, back in, in drama school getting my uh, master's in writing and uh, we had to write a full-length play and this was about you 9 know, 913, 2001 and the idea of doing tackling something that could really say anything serious about what was going on in the world at the time was unthinkable to me so I went totally in the opposite direction and I said what can make people laugh and I started working on this play because I really wanted to make people laugh at the time and uh, that was the inspiration. Uh, taking multiple theater history classes in my life was another inspiration. You get to a certain <laughs> place where you're like, I cannot hear about the Greeks anymore without making fun of them. And uh, so that's what I did. <laughs> I decided, okay, I'm, now I'm making fun of them. And uh, those were the two inspirations. And another inspiration was that I had worked in uh, commercial Broadway theater for about six seven six years before uh going back to get this writing degree and uh you see a lot of backstage uh shenanigans going on in commercial theater and what
0: I uh, it's supposed to be very professional No, it's very
8: professional <laughs> it's incredibly professional nothing untoward ever happens in theater ever so i'm making it all up no basis <laughs> in fact whatsoever um but I had seen all this stuff going on over the years, and I thought, wouldn't it be hilarious if the Greeks, if this kind of stuff went on with the Greeks as well, all the way back to the beginning of, of theater, we had um, backstage shenanigans. So those three things kind of came together uh, to make me start working on the play. And I actually, I obviously, it's not 2001 anymore. Um, I did put the play down for a good number of years. Working on other things, working on other projects, and I came back to it uh, about a year ago and said, "I really want to, you know, put this together and see what it's like on its feet." So, that's you know how it started. It's trek to the fringe.
0: So, within your numerous theater history classes, mm-hmm. w- what are some of the more um, the what's the right word the the more unheard nuggets you found out about you know the the Grecian theater? Um, well, I
8: think Sock and Buskin would have been <laughs> two of them. Just those those names that. Comedy and tragedy masks actually have names, and and where they come from. That was that was one uh, nugget. Um, the story of uh, of Silenus, um, which is something that we pulled into the play, um, was something that one of my theater professor histo- theater history professors <laughs> was very fond of, and it was uh, the wisdom of Silenus is um, a, ha- a happy man is one who has never been born. And the happier man is one who will die soon. Uh, If you have been born, happiness is to die soon, Um, which sounds like the most horrible thing in the world. (laughs) It's a very negative theory um, that we pulled into the play that that one of the kind of blowhard characters holds. Um, You know, gosh, we go all over the place with theater history in this. We have one character who um, mangles a lot of Lady M quotes. Um, We have another character who quotes Hamlet, and there are a few Hamlet references Was in, Hamlet there. Around in the no pre- he wasn't <laughs> we have we go from Greek to Elizabethan <laughs> to August Osage county. We've got uh the whole breadth of of theater uh commenting on it in our show. We're commenting on everything we have no uh we have no time period that we're stamped in we will go anywhere just for a joke a good one a bad one an in between one but um I noticed the other night at our first performance there were, you know, different groups of people laughing at different things. You'd make a, some of them would be the kind of the theater history nerds and laughing at the Greek stuff. Some of them would be the physical comedy people laughing at the physical comedy stuff. So it's kind of interesting to see what different people are responding to as we go forward with the show.
0: So, so with, with this Nymph production, and as a playwright, I'm kind of curious, how hands-on or hands-off have you been with the actual production of this
8: I have been incredibly hands-on, which um, may or may not be a good thing. Uh, The director is still speaking to me, so I guess it is somewhat a good thing. Um, It's the (laughs) first—it's the first full production of the show. It's had readings before, but since it's the first full production of the show, we were changing things in rehearsals with the actors and the actor. It was a very collaborative environment. It's really feels like we're doing a workshop feels like we're doing a workshop down at the fringe. And uh, that was our intent, to do a workshop type production. So I've been involved. I've been in the rehearsal room all the time. Director Mary Jo Lodge has been fantastic about, you know, shaping this play as we go along. The actors um, have all been kind of encouraged to be collaborative. But uh, I have been, I've been very hands-on, which is probably has positives and negatives, but I don't know how playwrights I know some playwrights who just say, I'll come to opening night. Give, here's the play, I'll come to mm-hmm. opening night. And that scares me too much. I don't know. I'm a bit of a micromanager, I suppose. But.
0: So what do you think are some of the biggest challenges facing uh, playwrights right now in terms of forging a career? Oh,
8: gosh. Um, how long do you have?
0: <laughs> um, Thirty words.
8: Thirty words. Uh, Money. (laughs) You can do it in one word. Money. Um, You know, it's incredibly difficult to make a a living as a playwright. I don't make a living as a playwright. Um, And you know, you hear a lot about people saying all the good playwrights are going to television because of you know the financial issues, and I think that's. I think there is some truth in that, but I think if you look at the history of playwriting, the number of people who have made a living as a playwright, you know, all throughout history has been minimal. So I'm not sure now that it's any worse than it has ever been, and it's probably better now because people who are playwrights actually have options. You can, you know, work on a television show. If you look at the Law & Order uh, writing staff, there there are tons of playwrights on that writing staff and they come back and forth between between theater and television and some like Kenny Lonergan and making movies. Um, I was just thinking of him, and, and uh, you can count on me. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it's very challenging to make a living as a playwright. It's hard because of economic reasons. It's hard because of cultural and, and um, financial, fiscal reasons. But I kind of think that things may be better for writers today than they ever actually have been. In history, And I don't know that we like to think that way because we're all still struggling. <laughs> but, um, you know, now we've got more mediums, media to write in. Um, even the Internet now gives us some options. So even though it's, it's really difficult, I think uh, I would rather be a writer now than a writer in, uh, oh gosh, when Oliver Cromwell was ruling England. What about so. Grecian times? <laughs> Um, you know, there were several who seemed to do fairly nicely in Grecian times, but since we don't know about the rest of them, since they've all been lost to history, they were probably waiting tables, We too, don't know yeah. about the other one, yeah.
0: Mom, I want to be a writer! Exactly. Ah, they were waiting tables. They were,
8: they were, I don't know, doing whatever writers did back then, but I would assume it had something to do with some sort of table waiting or catering job that they <laughs> were doing. <laughs> so...
0: Right now, um, Grecian Formula is already opened. It is. And it runs through the 20th? It runs of,
8: through uh, our last performances on the 20th, yes. We've got one Tuesday the 12th, one on Saturday the 16th, <laughs> one on Sunday the 17th, and one on the 20th of August.
0: Now, is there so, a website people can go to? There is,
8: 10? www.thegrecianformula.com.
0: Oh, well, that should be so, easy enough to it remember. It is very
8: easy to remember. We're lucky we got it.
0: <laughs> All uh, right. <laughs> well, Carter and McGowan. I right, thank you. Is that, did I get that all right? You did okay, get that. Okay, you looked right. at me. You had a weird look in your eyes. Uh, I said your name. I just so. always
8: have a weird look in my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: right, thank you so much for coming down and talking about your show, The Grecian Formula. Wish you the best of luck as the fringe continues and uh, taking the show beyond there.
8: Thank you. Okay. Thanks, thanks you. so much.
0: Top of the Trades Manhattan Theater Club will rename its Broadway house, currently the Biltmore Theater to the Samuel J. Friedman Theatre on September 4th. The ceremony will begin with a 6 p.m. reception at the theatre, located at 261 West 47th Street, followed by dedication at 7 p.m. Guests will be invited onto the street at 7.30 p.m. for the lighting of the theater's new marquee. As previously announced, the theatre is being renamed to honor pioneering Broadway publicist Friedman. Among those in attendance will be publicist Shirley Hertz and Bob Ullman, two of Friedman's associates, who will be honored with a lobby name for them. The first production to grace the newly named Samuel J. Friedman Theater will be MTC's production of To Be or Not To Be, which begins preview September 11th and opens October 2nd. (coughs) Matt Cavanaugh, most recently seen on Broadway in the Harvey Fierstein-John Buccino musical A Catered Affair, and having appeared on Broadway Bullet when he was in Grey Gardens, will likely be headed back to the Great White Way in 2009. Variety reports that the singing actor has been offered the lead role of Tony in the forthcoming revival of West Side Story that will be directed by its librettist, Arthur Lawrence. Producers of the musical would not confirm the casting to the industry, but the revival, produced by Kevin McCollum, James Niederlander, and Jeffrey Seller, will officially open on Broadway March 19, 2009. The Public announced complete casting for the New York premiere of Roadshow, a new musical featuring music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, book by John Weedman, and direction and scenic design by John Doyle. Roadshow was originally titled Bounce. The cast of 15 will feature Michael Severus and Alexander Gemignani as the two Meisner brothers. Roadshow will begin previews on Tuesday, October 28th and run through Sunday, December 28th with an official press opening on Tuesday, November 18th. Public Artistic Director Oscar Eustace was quoted as saying, Over the last three years, John Weedman and Stephen Sondheim have done transformative work on the project. We have now retitled Roadshow. John Doyle has assembled an extraordinary team of actor-singers, and I'm confident that the result will be a revelation. End quote. Spanning 40 years from the Alaskan gold rush to the Florida real estate boom in the 30s, Roadshow is a story of two brothers whose quest for the American dream turns into a test of morality and judgment that changes their lives in unexpected ways. Curtain Call. Well, that wraps up this episode of Broadway Bullet, Volume 214. Next uh, episode, remember, we're the second and fourth Thursday of every month, begins our exclusive, extensive coverage of the Nymph New York Musical Theater Festival. You might want to go to their website, nymph, nymf.org, to find out more information and start you know, getting prepared to get your tickets early, get on the mailing list. And in these episodes, you're going to hear tons and tons of interviews and music from all of the various shows coming on, and there's so many shows that we might actually do an extra episode uh, in September. We'll see how many people come in here for interviews, but I won't subject you to a four-hour-long episode, so we might have an, an, an extra bonus episode in there. So three or four episodes of exclusive Nymph coverage is coming very shortly. I'm your host, Michael Gibble, and thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet.
6: All the air- So,
3: Jake Cousins is my name, and I'm in the can. Check, 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 check. Actually, the parfait thing comes
2: from my whole life. People just going, So, it
0: didn't take much, though, when you proposed. I yet to unpackage those things with the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand-new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow.